Maddie told Hattie about a thing she saw. Two big horns and a woolly jaw. Woolly bully. Woolly bully for you, stout yeoman. This month, this this week, this 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 season, we are being sponsored by bunnyslippers.com and their Highland Cow Wooly Bully Slippers. It doesn't say Wooly Bully on the website. It's just what I'm saying because I've had that song stuck in my head since I got these comfortable, comfortable wool slippers that I've been strolling around the studio with. Go to bunnyslippers.com. Check them out yourself. Wooly Bully. That's not their name. Highland Cow Slippers. Highland Cow Slippers. Ooh, they're so soft and they're so fuzzy. And probably the next convention that I'll be at, I'll throw a pair out in the audience for everyone. Wooly Bully Slippers from bunnyslippers.com. And you know what? I can't talk about bunnyslippers.com without talking about my super cool, greasy Tony's t-shirt. It's a three-quarter length sleeve shirt. I'm just talking about it because I love this shirt. They don't expect me to talk about it. I just love... Dressing like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. It's, uh, I don't know. He's my, he's my Patronus, I guess one would say. All right. You know what we're talking about this week? We're not talking about anything this week. We're listening, people. We're listening. We're listening to Jules Verne. It's his, it's his birth month this month. Uh, and we're going to be covering, we're going to be talking about the Antarctic mystery. Wahaha. Yes, the Antarctic mystery where the Antarctic is more broken than my various accents that I do throughout the intro to this show. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, spooky dookie. And, uh, hey, just something that's out there. If you are someone who likes the show and wants to help out the show, why not go to pgttcm.com and go to the donate option. Help the show. Help the show grow. Help repair the equipment. Help me help other podcasters get off the ground as I'm doing with Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Zach Ferguson from Articulate Warbling. If you like either of those, why not help out the show and help them out as well? And also, I'm going to be trying to come up with a larger show, a larger format, something that I wanted People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos to be to begin with. Well, here's some Jewel for Sverne and enough of me talking. Let's go. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne Chapter 5 Edgar Poe's Romance In this chapter, I have to give a brief summary of Edgar Poe's Romance, which was published at Richmond under the title of The Adventures of Arthur Gordon Pym. We shall see whether there was any room for doubt that the adventures of this hero of romance were imaginary. But indeed, among the multitude of Poe's readers, was there ever one, with the sole exception of Len Guy, who believed them to be real? The story is told by the principal personage. Arthur Pym states in the preface that on his return from his voyage to the Antarctic seas, he met, among the Virginian gentlemen, who took an interest in geographical discoveries, Edgar Poe, who was then editor of the Southern Literary Messenger at Richmond and that he authored the latter to publish the first part of his adventures in that journal, under the cloak of fiction. That portion, having been favorably received, a volume containing the complete narrative was issued with the signature of Edgar Poe. Arthur Gordon Pym was born at Nantucket, where he attended the Bedford School until he was sixteen years old. Having left that school for Mr. Ronald's, he formed a friendship with one Augustus Barnard, the son of a ship's captain. This youth, who was eighteen, had already accompanied his father on a whaling expedition in the southern seas, and his yarns concerning that maritime adventure fired the imagination of Arthur Pym. Thus it was the association of these youths gave rise to Pym's irresistible vocation to adventurous voyaging, and to the instinct that especially attracted him towards the high zones of the Antarctic regions. The first exploit of Augustus Bernard and Arthur Pym was an excursion on board a little sloop, the Ariel, a two-decked boat which belonged to the Pyms. One evening the two youths, both being very tipsy, embarked secretly in cold October weather and boldly set sail in a strong breeze from the southwest. The Ariel, aided by the ebb tide, 
had already lost sight of land when a violent storm arose. The imprudent young fellows were still intoxicated. No one was at the helm. Not a reef was in the sail. The masts were carried away by the furious gusts, and the wreck was driven before the wind. Then came a great ship which passed over the Ariel, as the Ariel would have passed a floating feather. Arthur Pym gives the fullest details of the rescue of his companion and himself after this collision, under conditions of extreme difficulty. At length, thanks to the second officer of the Penguin, from New London, which arrived on the scene of the catastrophe, the comrades were picked with life all but extinct, and taken back to Nantucket. This adventure, to which I cannot deny an appearance of veracity, was an ingenious preparation for the chapters that were to follow, and indeed up to the day on which Pym penetrates into the polar circle, the narrative might conceivably be regarded as authentic. But beyond the polar circle, above the austral icebergs, it is quite another thing, and if the author's work be not one of pure imagination, I am, well, of any other nationality than my own. Let us get on. Their first adventure had not cooled the two youths, and eight months after the affair of the Ariel, June 1827, the brig Grampus was fitted out by the house of Lloyd and Vradenburg for whaling in the southern seas. This brig was an old, ill-repaired craft, and Mr. Barnard, the father of Augustus, was its skipper. His son, who was to accompany him on the voyage, strongly urged Arthur to go with him, and the latter would have asked nothing better, but he knew that his family, and especially his mother, would never consent to let him go. This obstacle, however, could not stop a youth not much given to submit to the wishes of his parents. His head was full of the entreaties and persuasions of his companion, and he determined to embark secretly on the Grampus, for Mr. Bernard would not have authorized him to defy the prohibition of his family. He announced that he had been invited to pass a few days with a friend at New Bedford, took leave of his parents, and left his home. Forty-eight hours before the brig was to sail, he slipped on board unperceived, and got into a hiding-place which had been prepared for him, unknown alike to Mr. Bernard and the crew. The cabin occupied by Augustus communicated by a trap-door with the hold of the Grampus, which was crowded with barrels, bales, and the innumerable components of a cargo. Through the trap-door Arthur Pym reached his hiding-place, which was a huge wooden chest with a sliding side to it. This chest contained a mattress, blankets, a jar of water, ship's biscuit, smoked sausage, a roast quarter of mutton, a few bottles of cordials and liquors, and also writing materials. Arthur Pym, supplied with a lantern, candles, and tinder, remained three days and nights in his retreat. Augustus Barnard had not been able to visit him until just before the Grampus set sail. An hour later, Arthur Pym began to feel the rolling and pitching of the brig. He was very uncomfortable in the chest, so he got out of it, and in the dark, while holding on by a rope which was stretched across the hold to the trap of his friend's cabin, he was violently seasick in the midst of the chaos. Then he crept back into his chest, ate, and fell asleep. Several days elapsed without the reappearance of Augustus Barnard. Either he had not been able to get down into the hold again, or he had not ventured to do so, fearing to betray the presence of Arthur Pym, and thinking the moment for confessing everything to his father had not yet come. Arthur Pym, meanwhile, was beginning to suffer from the hot and vitiated atmosphere of the hold. Terrible nightmares troubled his sleep. He was conscious of raving, and in vain sought some place amid the mass of cargo where he might breathe a little more easily. In one of these fits of delirium, he imagined that he was gripped in the claws of an African lion, and in a paroxysm of terror he was about to betray himself by screaming, when he lost consciousness. The fact is that he was not dreaming at all. It was not a lion that Arthur Pym felt crouching upon his chest. It was his own dog, Tiger, a young Newfoundland. The animal had been smuggled on board by Augustus Barnard, 
unperceived by anybody. This, at least, is an unlikely occurrence. At the moment of Arthur's coming out of his swoon, the faithful tiger was licking his face and hands with lavish affection. Now the prisoner had a companion. Unfortunately, the said companion had drunk the contents of the water-jar while Arthur was unconscious. And when Arthur Pym felt thirsty, he discovered that there was not a drop to drink. His lantern had gone out during his prolonged faint. He could not find the candles and the tinder-box, and then he resolved to rejoin Augustus Barnard at all hazards. He came out of the chest, and although faint from inantiation and trembling with weakness, he felt his way in the direction of the trap-door by means of the rope. But while he was approaching, one of the bales of cargo, shifted by the rolling of the ship, fell down and blocked up the passage. With immense but quite useless exertion, he contrived to get over this obstacle. But when he reached the trap-door, under Augustus Barnard's cabin, he failed to raise it. And on slipping the blade of his knife through one of the joints, he found that a heavy mass of iron was placed upon the trap, as though it were intended to condemn him beyond hope. He had to renounce his attempt and drag himself back towards the chest, on which he fell, exhausted, while Tiger covered him with caresses. The master and the dog were desperately thirsty, and when Arthur stretched out his hand, he found Tiger lying on his back with his paws up and his hair on end. He then felt Tiger all over, and his hand encountered a string passed along the dog's body. A strip of paper was fastened to the string under his left shoulder. Arthur Pym had reached the last stage of weakness. Intelligence was almost extinct. However, after several fruitless attempts to procure light, he succeeded in rubbing the paper with a little phosphorus. The details given in Edgar Poe's narrative are curiously minute at this point. And then, by the glimmer that lasted less than a second, he discerned just seven words at the end of a sentence. Terrifying words these were. Blood. Remain hidden. Life depends upon it. What did these words mean? Let us consider the situation of Arthur Pym at the bottom of the ship's hold, between the boards of a chest, without light, without water, with only ardent liquor to quench his thirst. And this warning to remain hidden, preceded by the word blood? That supreme word, king of words, so full of mystery, of suffering, of terror. Had there been strife on board the Grampus? Had the brig been attacked by pirates? Had the crew mutinied? How long had this state of things lasted? It might be thought that the marvellous poet had exhausted the resources of his imagination in the terror of such a situation. But it was not so. There is more to come. Arthur Pym lay stretched upon his mattress, incapable of thought, in a sort of lethargy. Suddenly he became aware of a singular sound, a kind of continuous whistling breathing. It was Tiger panting, Tiger with the eyes that glared in the midst of the darkness, Tiger with gnashing teeth, Tiger gone mad. Another moment and the dog had sprung upon Arthur Pym, who, wound up to the highest pitch of horror, recovered sufficient strength to ward off his fangs, and wrapping around him a blanket which Tiger had torn with his white teeth, he slipped out of the chest, and shut the sliding side upon the snapping and struggling brute. Arthur Pym contrived to slip through the stowage of the hold, but his head swam, and falling against a bale, he let his knife drop from his hand. Just as he felt himself breathing his last sigh, he heard his name pronounced, and a bottle of water was held to his lips. He swallowed the whole of its contents, and experienced the most exquisite of pleasures. A few minutes later, Augustus Barnard, seated with his comrade in a corner of the hold, told him all that had occurred on board the brig. Up to this point, I repeat, the story is admissible, but we have not yet come to the events which surpass all probability by their marvellousness. The crew of the Grampus numbered thirty-six men, including the Bernards, father and son. After the brig had put to sea on the 20th of June, Augustus Barnard had made several attempts to rejoin Arthur Pym in his hiding-place, but in vain. 
On the third day a mutiny broke out on board, headed by the ship's cook, a negro like our Endicott, but he, let me say at once, would never have thought of heading a mutiny. Numerous incidents are related in the romance. The massacre of most of the sailors who remained faithful to Captain Barnard, then the turning adrift of the captain and four of those men in a small whaler's boat when the ship was abreast of the Bermudas. These unfortunate persons were never heard of again. Augustus Bernard would not have been spared, but for the intervention of the sailing-master of the Grampus. This sailing-master was a half-breed named Jerk Peters, and was the person whom Captain Len Guy had gone to look for in Illinois. The Grampus then took a southeast course under the command of the mate, who intended to pursue the occupation of piracy in the southern seas. These events having taken place, Augustus Barnard would have again joined Arthur Pym, but he had been shut up in the forecastle in irons, and told by the ship's cook that he would not be allowed to come out until the brig should no longer be a brig. Nevertheless, a few days afterwards, Augustus contrived to get rid of his fetters, to cut through the thin partition between him and the hold, and, followed by Tiger, he tried to reach his friend's hiding-place. He could not succeed, but the dog had scented Arthur Pym, and this suggested to Augustus the idea of fastening a note to Tiger's neck, bearing the words, I scrawl this with blood, remain hidden, your life depends upon it. This note, as we have already learned, Arthur Pym had received. Just as he had arrived at the last extremity of distress, his friend reached him. Augustus added that discord reigned among the mutineers. Some wanted to take the Grampus towards the Cape Fared Islands. Others, and Dirk Peter was one of this number, were bent on sailing to the Pacific Isles. Tiger was not mad. He was only suffering from terrible thirst, and soon recovered when it was relieved. The cargo of the Grampus was so badly stowed away that Arthur Pym was in constant danger from the shifting of the bales and Augustus, at all risks, helped him to remove to a corner of the twain decks. The half-breed continued to be very friendly with the son of Captain Barnard, so that the latter began to consider whether the sailing-master might not be counted on in an attempt to regain possession of the ship. They were just thirty days out from Nantucket when, on the 4th of July, an angry dispute arose among the mutineers about a little brig signalled in the offing, which some of them wanted to take and others would have allowed to escape. In this quarrel a sailor, belonging to the cook's party, to which Dirk Peter had attached himself, was mortally injured. There was now only thirteen men on board, counting Arthur Pym. Under these circumstances a terrible storm arose, and the Grampus was mercilessly knocked about. This storm raged until the ninth of July, and on that day Dirk Peters having manifested an intention of getting rid of the mate, Augustus Bernard readily assured him of his assistance, without, however, revealing the fact of Arthur Pym's presence on board. Next day one of the cook's adherents, a man named Rogers, died in convulsions, and, beyond all doubt, of poison. Only four of the cook's party then remained. Of these, Dirk Peters was one. The mate had five, and would probably end by carrying the day over the cook's party. There was not an hour to lose, the half-breed, having informed Augustus Barnard that the moment for action had arrived. The latter told him the truth about Arthur Pym. While the two were in consultation upon the means to be employed for regaining possession of the ship, a tempest was raging, and presently a gust of irresistible force struck the Grampus and flung her upon her side, so that, on righting herself, she shipped a tremendous sea, and there was considerable confusion on board. This offered a favourable opportunity for beginning the struggle, although the mutineers had made peace amongst themselves. The latter numbered nine men, while the half-breed's party consisted only of himself, Augustus Bernard and Arthur Pym. The ship's master possessed only two pistols and a hanger. It was therefore necessary to act with prudence. 
Then did Arthur Pym, whose presence on board the mutineers did not suspect, conceive the idea of a trick which had some chance of succeeding. The body of the poisoned sailor was still lying on the deck. He thought it likely, if he were to put on the dead man's clothes, and appear suddenly in the midst of those superstitious sailors, that their terror would place them at the mercy of Dirk Peters. It was still dark when the half-breed went softly towards the ship's stern, and, exerting his prodigious strength to the utmost, threw himself upon the man at the wheel and flung him over the poop. Augustus Barnard and Arthur Pym joined him instantly, each armed with a belaying pin. Leaving Dirk Peters in the place of the steersman, Arthur Pym, so disguised as to present himself the appearance of the dead man, and his comrade posted themselves close to the head of the forecastle gangway. The mate, the ship's cook, and the, all the others were there, some sleeping, the others drinking or talking. Guns and pistols were within reach of their hands. The tempest raged furiously. It was almost impossible to stand on the deck. At that moment the mate gave the order for Augustus Bernard and Dirk Peters to be brought to the forecastle. This order was transmitted to the man at the helm, no other than Dirk Peters, who went down, accompanied by Augustus Barnard, and almost simultaneously Arthur Pym made his appearance. The effect of the apparition was prodigious. The mate, terrified, on beholding the resurrected sailor, sprang up, beat the air with his hands, and fell down dead. Then Dirk Peters rushed upon the others, seconded by Augustus Bernard, Arthur Pym, and the dog Tiger. In a few moments all were strangled or knocked on the head, save Richard Parker, the sailor whose life was spared. And now, while the tempest was still in full force, only four men were left to work the brig, which was laboring terribly with seven feet of water in her hold. They had to cut down the main mast, and when morning came, the mizzen. That day was truly awful. The night was more awful still. If Dirk Peters and his companions had not lashed themselves securely to the remains of the rigging, they must have been carried away by a tremendous sea, which drove in the hatches of the Grampus. Then follows in the romance a minute record of the series of incidents ensuing upon this situation. From the 14th of July to the 7th of August, the fishing for victuals in the submerged hold, the coming of a mysterious brig laden with corpses, which poisoned the atmosphere and passed on like a huge coffin, the sport of a wind of death, the torments of hunger and thirst, the impossibility of reaching the provision store, the drawing of lots by straws, the shortest gave Richard Parker to be sacrificed for the life of the other three, the death of that unhappy man who was killed by Dirk Peters and devoured, lastly the finding in the hold of a jar of olives and a small turtle. Owing to the displacement of her cargo, the Grampus rolled and pitched more and more. The frightful heat caused the torture of thirst to reach the extreme limit of human endurance. And on the 1st of August, Augustus Barnard died. On the 3rd, the brig foundered in the night, and Arthur Pym and the half-breed, crouching upon the upturned keel, were reduced to feed upon the barnacles with which the bottom was covered, in the midst of a crowd of waiting, watching sharks. Finally, after the shipwrecked mariners of the Grampus had drifted no less than twenty-five degrees towards the south, they were picked up by the schooner Jane of Liverpool, Captain William Guy. Evidently, reason is not outraged by an admission of the reality of these facts, although the situations are strained to the utmost limits of possibility. But that does not surprise us, for the writer is the American magician-poet, Edgar Poe. But from this moment onwards we shall see that no semblance of reality exists in the succession of incidents. Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters were well treated on board the English schooner Jane. In a fortnight, having recovered from the effects of their sufferings, they remembered them no more. With alternations of fine and bad weather, the Jane sighted Prince Edward's Island on the 13th of October, 
then the Crozet Islands, and afterwards the Kerguelens, which I had left eleven days ago. Three weeks were employed in chasing sea-calves. These furnished the Jane with a goodly cargo. It was during this time that the captain of the Jane buried the bottle in which his namesake of the Halbrane claims to have found a letter containing William Guy's announcement of his intention to visit the Austral Seas. On the 12th of November, the schooner left the Kerguelens, and after a brief stay at Tristan d'Archuna, she sailed to reconnoitre the Auroras in 35 degrees 15 minutes of south latitude and 37 degrees 38 minutes of west longitude. But these islands were not to be found, and she did not find them. On the 12th of December, the Jane headed towards the Antarctic Pole. On the 26th, the first icebergs came in sight beyond the 73rd degree. From the 1st to the 14th of January, 1828, the movements were difficult. The polar circle was passed in the midst of ice floes. The iceberg's point was doubled, and the ship sailed on the surface of an open sea, the famous open sea, where the temperature is 47 degrees Fahrenheit, and the water is 34 degrees Edgar Poe, everyone will allow, gives free rein to his fancy at this point. No navigator had ever reached latitudes so high, not even James Weddell of the British Navy, who did not get beyond the 74th parallel in 1822. But the achievement of the Jane, although difficult of belief, is trifling in comparison with the succeeding incidents which Arthur Pym, or rather Edgar Poe, relates with simple earnestness. In fact, he entertained no doubt of reaching the pole itself. In the first place, not a single iceberg is to be seen on this fantastic sea. Innumerable flocks of birds skim its surface. Among them is a pelican which is shot. On a floating piece of ice is a bear of the arctic species and of gigantic size. At last, land is signalled. It is an island of a league in circumference to which the name of Bennet Islet was given, in honour of the captain's partner in the ownership of the Jane. Naturally, in proportion as the schooner sailed southward, the variation of the compass became less, while the temperature became milder, with the sky always clear and a uniform northerly breeze. Needless to add that in that latitude and in the month of January there was no darkness, the Jane pursued her adventurous course until, on the 18th of January, land was sighted in latitude 83 degrees 20 minutes and longitude 43 degrees 5 minutes. This proved to be an island belonging to a numerous group scattered about in a westerly direction. The schooner approached and anchored off the shore. Arms were placed in the boats, and Arthur Pym got into one of the latter with Dirk Peters. The men rowed shorewards, but were stopped by four canoes carrying armed men. New men, the narrative calls them. These men showed no hostile intentions, but cried out continuously, Anamu and Lama Lama. When the canoes were alongside the schooner, the chief, to it, was permitted to go on board with twenty of his companions. There was profound astonishment on their part then, for they took the ship for a living creature, and lavished caresses on the rigging, the masts, and the bulwarks. Steering between the reefs by these natives, she crossed a bay with a bottom of black sand, and cast anchor within a mile of the beach. Then William Guy, leaving the hostages on board, stepped ashore amid the rocks. If Arthur Pym is to believed, this was Salal Island. Its trees resembled none of the species in any other zone of our planet. The composition of the rocks revealed a stratification unknown to modern mineralogists. Over the bed of the streams ran a liquid substance without any appearance of limpidity, streaked with distinct veins, which did not reunite by immediate cohesion when they were parted by the blade of a knife. Clock-clock, which we are obliged to describe as the chief town of the island, consisted of wretched huts, entirely formed of black skins. It possessed domestic animals resembling the common pig, 
a sort of sheep with a black fleece, twenty kinds of fowls, tame albatross, ducks, and large turtles in great numbers. Arriving at Clock Clock, Captain William Guy and his companions found a population which Arthur Pym estimated at ten thousand souls, men, women, and children, if not to be feared, at least to be kept at a distance. So noisy and demonstrative they were. Finally, after a long halt at the hut of Tewit, the strangers returned to the shore, where the beche de mer, the favorite food of the Chinese, would provide enormous cargoes, for the succulent mollusk is more abundant there than in any other part of the austral regions. Captain William Guy immediately endeavored to come to an understanding with Tewit on this matter, requesting him to authorize the construction of sheds in which some of the men of the Jane might prepare the beche de mer, while the schooner should hold on her course towards the pole. Tewit accepted this proposal willingly, and made a bargain by which the natives were to give their labor in the gathering in of the precious mollusk. At the end of the month, the sheds being finished, three men were told off to remain at Salal. The natives had not given the strangers cause to entertain the slightest suspicion of them. Before leaving the place, Captain William Guy wished to return once more to the village of Clock Clock, having from prudent motives left six men on board, the guns charged, the bulwark nettings in their place, and the anchor hanging at the forepeak. In a word, all in readiness to oppose an approach of the natives. To it, escorted by a hundred warriors, came out to meet the visitors. Captain William Guy and his men, although the place was propitious to an ambuscade, walked in close order, each pressing upon each other. On the right, a little in advance, were Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters and a sailor named Allen. Having reached a spot where a fissure traversed the hillside, Arthur Pym turned into it in order to gather some hazelnuts which hung in clusters upon stunted bushes. Having done this, he was returning to the path when he perceived that Allen and the half-breed had accompanied him. They were all three approaching the mouth of the fissure when they were thrown down by a sudden and violent shock. At the same moment, the crumbling masses of the hill slid down upon them, and they instantly concluded that they were doomed to be buried alive. Alive? All three? No. Allen had been so deeply covered by the sliding soil that he was already smothered. But Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters contrived to drag themselves on their knees, and opening away with their bowie knives to a projecting mass of harder clay which had resisted the movement from above and from thence they climbed to a natural platform at the extremity of a wooded ravine. Above them they could see the blue sky roof, and from their position were enabled to survey the surrounding country. An artificial landslip, cunningly contrived by the natives, had taken place. Captain William Guy and his twenty-eight companions had disappeared. They were crushed beneath more than a million tons of earth and stones. The plain was swarming with natives who had come, no doubt, from the neighboring islets, attracted by the prospect of pillaging the Jane. Seventy boats were being paddled towards the ship. The six men on board fired on them, but their aim was uncertain in the first volley. A second, in which mitrail and grooved bullets were used, produced a terrible effect. Nevertheless, the Jane, being boarded by the swarming islanders, her defenders were massacred, and she was set on fire. Finally a terrific explosion took place. The fire had reached the powder store, killing a thousand natives and mutilating as many more, while the others fled, uttering the cry of Tikalili, Tikalili. During the following week Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters, living on nuts and bitterns flesh, escaped discovery by the natives who did not suspect their presence. They found themselves at the bottom of a sort of dark abyss, including several plains, but without issue, hollowed out from the hillside and of great extent. The two men could not live in the midst of these successive abysses, and after several attempts they let themselves slide on one of the slopes of the hill. Instantly six savages rushed upon them, but thanks to their pistols and the extraordinary strength of the half-breed, four of the assailants were killed. 
The fifth was dragged away by the fugitives, who reached a boat which had been pulled up on the beach and was laden with three huge turtles. A score of natives pursued and vainly tried to stop them. The former were driven off, and the boat was launched successfully and steered for the south. Arthur Pym was then navigating beyond the 84th degree of south latitude. It was the beginning of March. That is to say, the Antarctic winter was approaching. Five or six islands, which it was prudent to avoid, were visible towards the west. Arthur Pym's opinion was that the temperature would become more mild by degrees as they approached the pole. They tied together two white shirts which they had been wearing, and hoisted them to do duty as a sail. A sight of these shirts, the native, who answered to the name of Nunu, was terrified. For eight days this strange voyage continued, favored by a mild wind from the north, in permanent daylight, on a sea without a fragment of ice. Indeed, owing to the high and even temperature of the water, no ice had been seen since the parallel of Bennett Island. Then it was that Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters entered upon a region of novelty and wonder. Above the horizon line rose a broad bar of light grey vapour, striped with long luminous rays, such as are projected by the polar aurora. A very strong current came to aid the breeze. The boat sailed rapidly upon a liquid surface of milky aspect, exceedingly hot and apparently agitated from beneath. A fine white ash-dust began to fall, and this increased the terror of Nunu whose lips trembled over his two rows of black ivory. On the ninth of March this rain of ashes fell in redoubled volume, and the temperature of the water rose so high that the hand could no longer bear it. The immense curtain of vapour, spread over the distant perimeter of the southern horizon, resembled a boundless cataract falling noiselessly from the height of some huge rampart lost in the height of the heavens. Twelve days later, it was darkness that hung over these waters, darkness furrowed by luminous streaks darting from the milky depths of the Antarctic Ocean, while the incessant shower of ash-dust fell and melted in its waters. The boat approached the cataract with an impetuous velocity, whose cause is not explained in the narrative of Arthur Pym. In the midst of this frightful darkness, a flock of gigantic birds of livid white plumage swept by, uttering their eternal Tekelili, and then the savage, in the supreme throes of terror, gave up the ghost. Suddenly, in a mad whirl of speed, the boat rushed into the grasp of the cataract, where a vast gulf seemed ready to swallow it up. But before the mouth of this gulf there stood a veiled human figure, of greater size than any inhabitant of this earth, and the colour of the man's skin was the perfect whiteness of snow. Such is the strange romance, conceived by the more than human genius of the greatest poet of the new world. End of chapter 5「An Antarctic Mystery » by Jules Verne Chapter 6 an ocean waif. The navigation of the Halbrane went on prosperously with the help of the sea and the wind. In fifteen days, if this state of things lasted, she might reach Tristan d'Acuna. Captain Len Guy left the working of the ship to James West, and well might he do so. There was nothing to fear with such a seaman as he. Our lieutenant has not his match afloat said Hurley-Gurley to me one day. He ought to be in command of a flagship. Indeed, I replied. He seems to be a true son of the sea. And then, our Halbrane, what a craft! Congratulate yourself, Mr. Jorling, and congratulate yourself also that I succeeded in bringing the captain to change his mind about you. If it was you who obtained that result, Bosun, I thank you heartily. And so you ought, for he was plaguily against it, was our captain, in spite of all old men Atkins could say. But I managed to make him hear reason. I shan't forget it, Bosun, 
I shan't forget it, since, thanks to your intervention, instead of moping at Kerguelen, I hope shortly to get within sight of Tristan de Chuna. And a few days, Mr. Shirling. Only think, sir, according to what I hear tell, they are making ships in England and America, with machines in their insides, and wheels which they use as a duck uses its paddles. All right, we shall know what's the good of them, when they come into use. My notion is, however, that those ships will never be able to fight with a fine frigate sailing with a fresh breeze. It was the third of September. If nothing occurred to delay us, our schooner would be in sight of port in three days. The chief island of the group is visible on clear days at a great distance. That day, between ten and eleven o'clock in the morning, I was walking backwards and forwards on the deck, on the windward side. We were sliding smoothly over the surface of an undulating sea. The halbrane resembled an enormous bird, one of the gigantic albatross kind described by Arthur Pym, which had spread its sail-like wings, and was carrying a whole ship's crew towards space. James West was looking out through his glasses to starboard at an object floating two or three miles away, and several sailors hanging over the side were also curiously observing it. I went forward and looked attentively at the object. It was an irregularly formed mass, about twelve yards in length, and in the middle of it there appeared a shining lump. "'That is no whale,' said Martin Holt, the sailing-master. "'It would have blown once or twice since we have been looking at it.' "'Certainly,' assented Hardy. "'Perhaps it is the carcass of some deserted ship.' "'May the devil send it to the bottom,' cried Roger. "'It would be a bad job to come up against it in the dark.' It might send us down before we could know what had happened. I believe you, added Drap, and these derelicts are more dangerous than a rock, for they are now here and again there, and there is no avoiding them. Hurley-Gearley came up at this moment and planted his elbows on the bulwark, alongside of mine. What do you think of it, boatswain? I asked. It is my opinion, Mr. Jorling, replied the boatswain, that what we see there is neither a blower nor a wreck but merely a lump of ice. Early girly is right, said James West. It is a lump of ice, a piece of an iceberg, which the currents have carried hither. What? said I. To the forty-fifth parallel? Yes, sir, answered West. That has occurred, and the ice sometimes gets up as high as the cape. If we are to take the word of a French navigator, Captain Blowsville, who met one at this height in 1828. Then this mass will melt before long. I observed, feeling not a little surprised that West had honoured me by so lengthy a reply. "'It must indeed be dissolved in great part already,' he continued, "'and what we see is the remains of a mountain of ice which must have weighed millions of tons.' Captain Len Guy now appeared, and perceiving the group of sailors around West, he came forward. A few words were exchanged in a low tone between the captain and the lieutenant, and the latter passed his glass to the former, who turned it upon the floating object, now at least a mile nearer to us. "'It is ice,' said he, "'and it is lucky it is dissolving. The halbrane might have come to serious grief by collision with it in the night.' I was struck by the fixity of his gaze upon the object, whose nature he had so promptly declared. He continued to contemplate it for several minutes, and I guessed what was passing in the mind of the man under the obsession of a fixed idea. This fragment of ice, torn from the southern icebergs, came from those waters wherein his thoughts continually ranged. He wanted to see it more near, perhaps at close quarters. It might be to take away some bits of it. At an order from west, the schooner was directed towards the floating mass. Presently we were within two cable lengths, and I could examine it. The mound in the centre was melting rapidly. Before the end of the day nothing would remain of the fragment of ice which had been carried by the currents so high up as the forty-fifth parallel. Captain Len Guy gazed at it steadily, but he now needed no glass, and presently we all began to distinguish a second object which, little by little, detached itself from the mass, according, as the melting process went on, a black shape stretched on the white ice. What was our surprise mingled with horror when we first saw an arm, then a leg, then a trunk, then a head appear, forming a human body, not in a state of nakedness, but clothed in dark garments? For a moment I even thought that the limbs moved, 
that the hands were stretched towards us. The crew uttered a simultaneous cry. No, this body was not moving, but it was slowly slipping off the icy surface. I looked at Captain Len Guy. His face was as livid as that of the corpse that had drifted down from the far latitudes of the austral zone. What could be done was done to recover the body of the unfortunate man, and who can tell whether a faint breath of life did not animate it even then? In any case, his pockets might perhaps contain some document that would enable his identity to be established. Then, accompanied by a last prayer, those human remains should be committed to the depth of the ocean, the cemetery of sailors who die at sea. A boat was let down. I followed it with my eyes as it neared the side of the ice fragment eaten by the waves. Hurligerly set foot upon a spot which still offered some resistance. Gratien, Gratien got out after him, while Francis kept the boat fast by the chain. The two crept along the ice until they reached the corpse, then drew it to them by the arms and legs, and so got it to the boat. A few strokes of the oars and the boatswain had rejoined the schooner. The corpse, completely frozen, having been laid at the foot of the mizzen-mast, Captain Len Guy approached and examined it long and closely, as though he sought to recognize it. It was the corpse of a sailor, dressed in coarse stuff, woolen trousers, and a patched jersey. A belt encircled his waist twice. His death had evidently occurred some months previously, perhaps very soon after the unfortunate man had been carried away by the drift. He was about forty, with slightly grizzled hair, a mere skeleton covered with skin. He must have suffered agonies of hunger. Captain Len Guy lifted up the hair, which had been preserved by the cold, raised the head, gazed upon the scaled eyelids, and finally said with a sort of sob, "'Patterson! Patterson!' "'Patterson!' I exclaimed. The name, common as it was, touched some chord in my memory. When had I heard it uttered? Had I read it anywhere? At this moment James West, on a hint from the boatswain, searched the pockets of the dead man, and took out of them a knife, some string, an empty tobacco-box, and lastly a leather pocket-book, furnished with a metallic pencil. "'Give me that,' said the captain. Some of the leaves were covered with writing, almost entirely effaced by the damp. He found, however, some words on the last page, which were still legible, and my emotion may be imagined when I heard him read aloud in a trembling voice. The Jane, Salal Island, by eighty-three, there, eleven years, Captain, five sailors surviving, hastened to bring them aid. And under these lines was a name, a signature, the name of Patterson. Then I remembered. Patterson was the second officer of the Jane, the mate of that schooner which had picked up Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters on the wreck of the Grampus. The Jane having reached Salal Island, the Jane which was attacked by natives and blown up in the midst of those waters. So then, it was all true? Edgar Poe's work, that of a historian, not writer of romance? Arthur Gordon Pym's journal had actually been confided to him. Direct relations had been established between them. Arthur Pym existed, or rather he had existed. He was a real being, and he had died by a sudden and deplorable death, under circumstances not revealed before he had completed the narrative of his extraordinary voyage. And what parallel had he reached on leaving Salal Island with his companion Dirk Peters? and how had both of them been restored to their native land, America. I thought my head was turning, that I was going mad. I, who accused Captain Guy of being insane. No, I had not heard right. I had misunderstood. This was a mere phantom of my fancy. And yet, how was I to reject the evidence found on the body of the mate of the Jane, that Patterson, whose words were supported by ascertained dates, and above all, how could I retain a doubt after James West, who was the most self-possessed among us, had succeeded in deciphering the following fragments of sentences? Drifting since the 3rd of June north of Salal Island, still there, Captain William Guy and five of the men of the Jane, 
The piece of ice I am on is drifting across the iceberg. Food will soon fail me. Since the 13th of June, my last resource is exhausted. Today, 16th of June, I am going to die. So then, for nearly three months, Patterson's body had lain on the surface of this ice waif, which we had met on our way from the Kerguelens to Tristan de Chuna. Ah, why had we not saved the mate of the Jane? I had to yield to evidence. Captain Len Guy, who knew Patterson, had recognized him in this frozen corpse. It was indeed he who accompanied the captain of the Jane when he had interred that bottle, containing the letter which I had refused to believe authentic, at the Kerguelens. Yes, for eleven years the survivors of the English schooner had been cast away there without any hope of succor. Len Guy turned to me and said, Do you believe me now? I believe, said I falteringly, but Captain William Guy of the Jane and Captain Len Guy of the Halbrane are brothers, he cried in a loud voice, which was heard by all the crew. Then we turned our eyes once more to the place where the lump of ice had been floating, but the double influence of the solar rays and the waters in this latitude had produced its effect. No trace of the dead man's last refuge remained on the surface of the sea. End of chapter 6「An Antarctic Mystery」by Jules Verne Chapter 7 Tristan da Chuna Four days later the Halbrane neared that curious island of Tristan da Chuna, which may be described as the big boiler of the African seas. By that time I had come to realize that the hallucination of Captain Len Guy was a truth, and that he and the captain of the Jane, also a reality, were connected with each other by this ocean waif from the authentic expedition of Arthur Pym. My last doubts were buried in the depths of the ocean with the body of Patterson. And now what was Captain Len Guy going to do? There was not a shadow of doubt on that point. He would take the Halbrane to Zalal Island as marked upon Patterson's notebook. His lieutenant, James West, would go whithersoever he was ordered to go. His crew would not hesitate to follow him, and would not be stopped by any fear of passing the limits assigned to human power, for the soul of their captain and the strength of their lieutenant would be in them. This, then, was the reason why Captain Len Guy refused to take passengers on board his ship, and why he had told me that his routes never were certain. He was always hoping that an opportunity for venturing into the sea of ice might arise. Who could tell, indeed, whether he would not have sailed for the south at once, without putting in at Tristan de Chuna, if he had not wanted water? After what I had said before I went on board the Halbrane, I should have had no right to insist on his proceeding to the island for the sole purpose of putting me ashore. But a supply of water was indispensable and besides it might be possible there to put the schooner in a condition to contend with the icebergs and gain the open sea, since open it was beyond the eighty-second parallel, in fact to attempt what Lieutenant Wilkes of the American Navy was then attempting. The navigators knew at this period that from the middle of November to the beginning of March was the limit during which some success might be looked for. The temperature is more bearable then, storms are less frequent, the icebergs break loose from the mass, the ice wall has holes in it, and perpetual day reigns in that distant region. Tristan da Chuna lies to the south of the zone of the regular southwest winds. Its climate is mild and moist. The prevailing winds are west and northwest, and, during the winter, August and September, south. The island was inhabited from 1811 by American whale-fishers. After them, English soldiers were installed there to watch the St. Helena seas, and these remained until after the death of Napoleon in 1821. Several years later, the group of islands populated by Americans and Dutchmen from the Cape acknowledged the suzerainty of Great Britain, but this was not so in 1839. My personal observation at that date convinced me that the possession of Tristan de Chuna was not worth disputing. In the sixteenth century the islands were called the Land of Life. On the 5th of September in the morning, 
the towering volcano of the chief island was signalled, a huge snow-covered mass, whose crater formed the basin of a small lake. Next day, on our approach, we could distinguish a vast, heaped-up lava-field. At this distance, the surface of the water was striped with gigantic seaweeds, vegetable ropes, varying in length from six hundred to twelve hundred feet, and as thick as a wine-barrel. Here I should mention that for three days subsequent to the finding of the fragment of ice, Captain Len Guy came on deck for strictly nautical purposes only, and I had no opportunity of seeing him except at meals, when he maintained silence, that not even James West could have enticed him to break. I made no attempt to do this, being convinced that the hour would come when Len Guy would again speak to me of his brother and of the efforts which he intended to make to save him and his companions. Now I repeat, the season being considered, that hour had not come when the schooner cast anchor on the 6th of September at Anseedling, in Falmouth Bay, precisely in the place indicated in Arthur Pym's narrative as the moorings of the Jane. At that period of the arrival of the Jane, an ex-corporal of the English artillery named Glass reigned over a little colony of twenty-six individuals, who traded with the Cape, and whose only vessel was a small schooner. At our arrival, this glass had more than fifty subjects, and was, as Arthur Pym remarked, quite independent of the British government. Relations with the ex-corporal were established on the arrival of the Halbrane, and he proved very friendly and obliging. West, to whom the captain left the business of refilling the water-tanks and taking in supplies of fresh meat and vegetables, had every reason to be satisfied with Glass, who, no doubt, expected to be paid, and was paid handsomely. The day after our arrival, I met ex-corporal Glass, a vigorous, well-preserved man, whose sixty years had not impaired his intelligent vivacity. Independently of his trade with the Cape and the Falklands, he did an important business in seal-skins and the oil of marine animals, and his affairs were prosperous. As he appeared very willing to talk, I entered briskly into conversation with this self-appointed governor of a contented little colony, by asking him, "'Do many ships put into Tristandachuna? "'As many as we require,' he replied, rubbing his hands together behind his back according to his invariable custom. In the fine season? Yes, in the fine season, if indeed we can be said to have any other in these latitudes. I congratulate you, Mr. Glass, but it is to be regretted that Tristan de Chuna has not a single port. If you possessed a landing stage now? For which purpose, sir, when nature has provided us with such a bay as this, where there is shelter from gales, and it is easier to lie snug right up against the rocks, no, Tristan has no port, and Tristan can do without one. Why should I have contradicted this good man? He was proud of his island, just as the Prince of Monaco is justly proud of his tiny principality. I did not persist, and we talked of various things. He offered to arrange for me an excursion to the depth of the thick forests, which clothed the volcano up to the middle of the central cove. I thanked him, but declined his offer, preferring to employ my leisure on land in some mineralogical studies. Besides, the Halbrane was to set sail so soon as she had taken in her provisions. "'Your captain is in a remarkable hurry,' said Governor Glass. "'You think so? He is in such haste that his lieutenant does not even talk of buying skins or oil from me.' "'We require only fresh victuals and fresh water, Mr. Glass.' "'Very well,' replied the governor, who was rather annoyed." What the Halbrane will not take, other vessels will. Then he resumed. And where is your schooner bound for on leaving us? For the Falklands, no doubt, where she can be repaired. You, sir, are only a passenger, I suppose. As you say, Mr. Glass, and I had even intended to remain at Tristan de Chuna for some weeks, but I have had to relinquish that project. Oh, I am sorry to hear it, sir. We would have been happy to offer you hospitality while awaiting the arrival of another ship. "'Such hospitality would have been most valuable to me,' I replied. "'But unfortunately I cannot avail myself of it.' "'In fact, I had finally resolved not to quit the schooner, "'but to embark for America from the Falkland Islands without much delay. 
I felt sure that Captain Len Guy would not refuse to take me to the islands. I informed Mr. Glass of my intention, and he remarked, still in a tone of annoyance, "'As for your captain, I have not even seen the colour of his hair.' "'I don't think he has any intention of coming ashore.' "'Is he ill?' "'Not to my knowledge, but it does not concern you, since he has sent his lieutenant to represent him.' "'Oh, he is a cheerful person.' One may extract two words from him occasionally. Fortunately, it is easier to get coin out of his pocket than speech out of his lips. That's the important thing, Mr. Glass. You are right, sir. Mr. Jorling of Connecticut, I believe. I assented. So I know your name, while I have yet to learn that of the captain of the Halbrane. His name is Guy, Len Guy. An Englishman? Yes, an Englishman. He might have taken the trouble to pay a visit to a countryman of his, Mr. Jorling. But stay, I had some dealings formerly with a captain of that name. Guy? Guy? William Guy? I asked quickly. Precisely, William Guy. Who commanded the Jane? The Jane, yes, the same man. An English schooner which put in at Tristan de Chuna eleven years ago? Eleven years, Mr. Jorling. I had been settled in the island where Captain Geoffrey, of the Berwick of London, found me in the year 1824, for full seven years. I perfectly recall this William Guy, as if he were before me. He was a fine, open-hearted fellow, and I sold him a cargo of sealskins. He had the air of a gentleman, rather proud, but good-natured. And the Jane? I can see her now at her mooring in the same place as the Halbrane. She was a handsome vessel of one hundred and eighty tons, very slender fords. She belonged to the port of Liverpool. Yes, that is true. All that is true. And is this Jane still afloat, Mr. Jorling? No, Mr. Glass. Was she lost? The fact is only too true, and the greater part of her crew with her. Will you tell me how this happened? Willingly. On leaving Tristan de Chuna, the Jane headed for the bearings of the Aurora and other islands, which William Guy hoped to recognize from information. That came from me, interrupted the ex-corporal, and those other islands, may I learn whether the Jane discovered them? No, nor the Auroras either, although William Guy remained several weeks in these waters, running from east to west, with a lookout always at the masthead. He must have lost his bearings, Mr. Shorling, for if several whalers, who were well deserving of credit, are to be believed, these islands do exist, and it was even proposed to give them my name. That would have been but just, I replied politely. It will be very vexatious if they are not discovered some day, added the governor, in a tone which indicated that he was not devoid of vanity. It was then, I resumed, that Captain Guy resolved to carry out a project he had long cherished, and in which he was encouraged by a certain passenger who was on board the Jane. Arthur Gordon Pym, exclaimed Glass, and his companion one, Dirk Peters, the two had been picked up at sea by the schooner. "'You knew them, Mr. Glass?' I asked eagerly. "'Knew them, Mr. Jorling? I should think I did indeed. That Arthur Pym was a strange person, always wanting to rush into adventures, a real rash American, quite capable of starting off to the moon. Has he gone there at last?' "'No, not quite, Mr. Glass, but during her voyage the schooner, it seems, did clear the polar circle and pass the ice-wall.' She got further than any ship had ever done before. What a wonderful feat! Yes, unfortunately the Jane did not return. Arthur Pym and William Guy escaped the doom of the Jane, and the most of her crew. They even got back to America. How, I do not know. Afterwards Arthur Pym died, but under what circumstances I am ignorant. As for the half-breed, after having retired to Illinois, he went off one day without a word, to anyone, and no trace of him has been found. "'And William Guy?' asked Mr. Glass. I related the finding of the body of Patterson, the mate of the Jane, and I added that everything led to the belief that the captain of the Jane and five of his companions were still living on an island in the austral regions, at less than six degrees from the pole. "'Ah, Mr. Jorling,' cried Glass, "'if some day William Guy and his sailors might be saved.' They seem to me to be such fine fellows. This is what the Halbrane is certainly going to attempt, so soon as she is ready, for her captain, Len Guy, is William Guy's own brother. Is it possible? 
Well, although I do not know Captain Len Guy, I venture to assert that the brothers do not resemble each other, at least in their behavior, to the governor of Tristan d'Acuna. It was plain that the governor was profoundly mortified, but no doubt he consoled himself by the prospect of selling his goods at twenty-five per cent above their value. One thing was certain. Captain Len Guy had no intention of coming ashore. This was the more singular, inasmuch as he could not be unaware that the Jane had put in at Tristan d'Acuna before proceeding to the southern seas. Surely he might have been expected to put himself in communication with the last European who had shaken hands with his brother. Nevertheless, Captain Len Guy remained persistently on board his ship, without even going on deck, and, looking through the glass skylight of his cabin, I saw him perpetually stooping over the table, which was covered with open books and outspread charts. No doubt the charts were those of the austral latitudes, and the books were the narratives of the precursors of the Jane in those mysterious regions of the South. On the table lay also a volume which had been read and re-read a hundred times. Most of its pages were dog's-eared, and their margins were filled with penciled notes. And on the cover shone the title in brightly gilded letters, The Adventures of Arthur Gordon Pym. End of chapter 7 Thank you again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Remember, you can help out the show by going to pgttcm.com. Follow the show notes and follow the show on social media. Uh, find us anywhere you catch your pods at your podcatchers. And, yeah, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Just look for us there and look for us wherever you look for podcasts thank you again donate money help out the show buy a t-shirt send us a you know contact us get in touch all right thank you again and have a great day